I'm coming to you this evening and I hope I won't be misunderstood. As Nina Simone sang, I'm a soul just trying to do good. However, these are times that try the soul. And I want to talk with you, not just as a professor of constitutional law at John Jay College, not as a former civil rights litigator, not as someone who's written books on race and the law, but I want to talk with you about something I think that's primary to our fight, and that's power. 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 Because if we didn't have power, we wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. What many people want us to believe is that we are powerless, that we are hopeless, that we are always vulnerable. People are used to bad things happening to black people. And if we start to accept that bad things should happen to us all the time, and that is our lot in life, then I think we have missed out on the joy that Terry spoke of earlier. We've missed out on the fact that I, for one, enjoy being an African-American. I like it. And no one is going to make me regret my freedom. No one is going to make me regret the fact that I am African-American. So I want to take us back a little bit. I've got about 10 to 15 minutes to go over 400 years, and I think I can do it. First, let's go to 1607, because those of us, and there's always someone in the room who has family or came from Virginia, then you know that 1607, we had the Jamestown colony founded in Jamestown, Virginia, the first permanent English colony in North America. It wanted to keep up with the French, wanted to keep up with the Portuguese, wanted to keep up with the Spanish. They were already in what? the New World. That's what they called us up here. Because back then, this was called what? New Amsterdam, not New York. It was New Amsterdam. That's why we have Stuyvesant. Okay, so then what happened to this struggling colony in this little swampland called Jamestown, Virginia, for those of us in church? That is King James, the same King James. That's how we got Jamestown, named after that very King James from the King James Version of the Bible. But what happened in 1619? The 20 Africans were introduced into the Jamestown colony. In 1620, the Mayflower landed. We were here before the Mayflower. If you need to research it because law is evidence-based, the first black couple was in the 1600s. They were from Angola in the Jamestown colony named Mary and Anthony Johnson. Mary and Anthony Johnson, the first black couple. They owned land. They bought each other's freedom. They had servants of their own, black as well as white servants in the 1620s. And then the laws changed. It was a perfect storm for oppression. The slaveholders then took over. They changed the laws. They made perpetual labor because they needed that labor to work their land. 
I want you to know we had power then and way before we were the first people, made the first footsteps, had the first universities. We had power, and they tried to stifle that power and that progress. And that's what's going on right now. There's a history of abuse, but there's always been a hopeful future, or we wouldn't be in this room right now. So I want us to think about the fact that so much has happened over a long period of time that puts us in a situation in which we have criminal injustice systems in play here. America has 5% of the population of the world and, of course, 25% of the incarcerated persons in our jails and prisons. It is the prison industrial complex. They do make money off of it. As Five said, Brother Five said, it's a profit-making organization that allows them to not only have a very middle-class lifestyle in these rural communities where the prison populations are counted in the population that allows them to have an increased number of U.S. representatives in Congress. So then why would they want to change the criminal justice laws? It will be a fight, a fight for power, political and economic power. We also know that although we are 13% of the country's population, in certain places, 60 to 80% of those in prisons and jails. We need to know what it means what it means to be on parole. The first time I heard about parole, I was working at the Southern Poverty Law Center in Montgomery, Alabama. And my aunt, who is a person with a PhD in psychology, used to be part of a prison ministry at her church. And she and I would go to Wetumpka Women's Prison in Wetumpka, Alabama. And we would get up early and we would go to the women in the segregation unit. They weren't segregated by race, they were segregated by HIV status. And it was there I used to volunteer my legal expertise and she would volunteer her counseling expertise and we would spend time with those women. And we used to argue on behalf of their need with HIV, with health issues, to have early parole. Who are they going to hurt these women? Who are they going to hurt these women in prison? Who are they going to hurt? Whom besides being hurt by having their health affected already in a cold, cold prison? But they were not let out. Many of them died in prison. They were not let out, not even for humanitarian reasons. And parole, as we know, is the ability to allow someone to end their sentence early. I had men write to me who are imprisoned, who wrote, why is it that there are white prisoners who have committed murder, and yet all I did was sell drugs, and they won't let me out, and they let him out. So we have these issues and we have other issues on the other side. As was pointed out, the story of Wallace, the man on parole. And I want to speak a little bit about that because you're going to hear about a number of people next, the next day, people who are imprisoned and seek parole. But this life of 
fear for those people who are on parole. And in places like New Jersey, a person can be on parole for 20 years. 20 years living in fear of possibly making a mistake, turning on the wrong way on the road, as was pointed out, getting into an argument, finding someone who's a felon in your presence and you don't even know it because the law said you can't be around anyone who's a known felon. Someone having a weapon on them and you have no idea, you just happen to be in the car getting a ride to the bus station, the train station to work, to live in constant fear of the knock on the door and going back. So we have this history of prison. What is prison anyway? How did we come up with this? It's been around a long time, thousands of years. We have biblical references of prison. We have the Romans who imprisoned. And how was it started? Because people had certain values that were codified. That's what criminal law is. That's what law is. It's the codification of values. We want people to behave this way. And if you don't, if you violate our values, we are going to take you out of this community and put you somewhere else. And if you violate this in a very violent way, then we're going to make sure you have harsher punish punishments, harsher times. So then the person is isolated away from the community. And I'm not saying everybody is an angel. Some people need a major time out. But we also have to look at it this way. They were human when they needed that time out. And as Terry pointed out, you don't know what the issues were that caused them to do this or act in certain ways. They might not even know what's causing it. Are they getting any help? Or whatever was the problem before is now been exacerbated and made worse over time from the hostile environment. Prison is also something for revenge. And we have to say this. A society for revenge. I want you to suffer because you took my property, because you made me feel bad, and because you violated these mores, these values that we hold so dear. But it was in the 1800s, finally, that there were prison reforms. And those prison reforms took many types of forms. But I want us to know, when it comes to these things, prison became an extension of slavery when slavery ended. We have to be very serious about what happened. In 1865, when the Civil War ended, and some people need to know, go back and tell your neighbors that the South lost. I, I'm, I'm looking at Congress. And I, and I have a feeling some people below the Mason-Dixon line didn't get the message. But the South did indeed lose, and one of the vengeance is that they had, part of the revenge was to control the lives of those newly freed Africans, as well as the lives of Asians who were in this country, as well as Native Americans, and truth be told, poor whites. But because of this racial divide, too often the laws that were affecting us were also affecting poor whites, but they did not want to see the commonality of the situation. And instead, that divide and conquer that has worked so well for so long continued to manifest.
So we had the convict lease system. That was a system in which people were put in chain gangs. That was a system of black codes, C-O-D-E-S, black codes, black laws, criminal laws, put in place just for the newly released slave, just for the newly freed African. Because keep in mind, during slavery, families were torn apart. Children were sold off. So you had people seeking their family members. Have you seen my daughter? I think she was sold in Tennessee. Light skin, long kind of hair. She was wearing a red dress. I'm looking for her. They would travel by foot. But what is that called? Trespassing. Five years. I'm looking for work. You mean you don't have work? No. Then you're loitering. Five years. This is the way they could rebuild the South that had been destroyed during the Civil War through prison labor. That was the convict lease system. And that continued from 1865 until 1940. So now we have people who've gotten a taste of not just oppressing black people, limiting their freedom, but also how to use that labor in a way that benefits them. Businesses as well as governmental municipalities used incarcerated labor. So now when we get to this idea of freedom, what is it? What do we call it? How does it look? When we look at the 13th Amendment, we need to know that the, the amendment actually says in the Constitution, and those of you who had a chance to hear my presentation downstairs or talk with me one-on-one, -on -one, you know that I have a U.S. Constitution. I believe in the Constitution. I'm a Constitution geek, Constitution type person. I get so excited, I have to calm myself. I think I'm getting excited right now. <laughs> The U.S. Constitution has in it more references to people of African descent than to any other group. Our struggle, our challenge of oppressive laws not only created these laws that went to the U.S. Supreme Court and were challenged and we won, but then created protections for everybody else as well. But the 13th Amendment, as you can see, if you read your Constitution, abolish slavery except as punishment for a crime. So that is how we have this perpetual criminal injustice system. The criminal justice system created to limit black progress, but we progressed anyway. It tried to limit black power, but we had power anyway. So when we look at parole, we have to understand it's not even limited to the people. It's devastating enough that, it's, that it involves the people who are incarcerated, but it's not just limited to them. It's limited to the people who finally get parole and then live a lifetime of fear until the parole ends. And those people now are dealing with economic, social, and educational injustices because they have extended it. And I hope Riverside Church Prison Ministry will look at the extent of parole, how long parole lasts, and the racial ramifications of the length of parole. 
Because when the brother contacted me, I had one contacting me to say he can't get parole. I have another that contacted me that said he'd been on parole for 20 years. 20 years of being fearful of one mistake. As the minister pointed out, to be wood. But we're human. We're not an inanimate object. We need to know that people on parole are people who had limited educational opportunities before, and probably that led to them getting in trouble in the first place. And now those opportunities are limited even more because while they're on parole, they cannot vote. Even in New York State, some people with felony convictions in states in the South lose their right to vote for life. So now that cuts us out of the economic process because in many ways, without that vote, we can't determine who's making the laws that will affect our lives. We can't have the jobs that we want. We can be discriminated against in that way. Without that money, what are our housing possibilities? We have schools now that won't take applicants who have a criminal record or are on parole. All these things are taking place among us in a place where, when you think about how many people are incarcerated or with records, in this room, I know I have a family member who is incarcerated at this point in time. You can't have 25% of the world's incarcerated persons and it's only three to four degrees of separation for you to have somebody in your family who's incarcerated. So when you also look at the educational limits, you look at the race discrimination, and then you see the convictions, less than 4% of people who are on parole, or up for parole, even have a violent crime that has incarcerated them in the first place. But I want you to know there was power in the 1800s when prison reform started to take place. And it was the religious people who were part of that reform. They said in the 1800s, what are we doing? Who is this human being that we've put in solitary confinement, that we've isolated from the community and family? And it was community, it was family. You might look at this and go, oh my goodness, this is such a large problem. How could we ever solve it? I look at it and say, we actually ended slavery and it was in place for over 300 years. We ended Jim Crow as it was legally recognized. We did so many things because we could and we had the power to do it. Do not allow anyone to diminish your power because if you didn't have power in the first place, they wouldn't come after us. The criminal injustice system is like this iron bar around the neck of the Africans stolen from the continent. The criminal injustice system is bleeding our communities, it's destroying our families, it's attempting to break our spirits. The criminal injustice system and the fact that we're not allowed to access parole and when we do, we're on parole way, way too long. The criminal injustice system 
is an ungodly thing. And in this house of the Lord, I pray that we will use the power we have and the power God gave us to make what is wrong right. Thank you.